are listening to Into the Valley, a Phoenix Suns podcast, a part of the Brightside Podcast Network. Welcome into the Valley. I am Ethan Shutt, joined by Philip Russell after an exciting game one. Man, that game was a little scarier than it needed to be. Was that just me being a ridiculous fan, Philip? But uh, I got a little nervous there. No, I just watched two decently stressful games of basketball in a row. The second one was less stressful on me than the first one. So I actually have some soothing meditation music playing while we while we record this. So I'm trying to trying to find a good place as we I wind mean, down our day together. That's probably needed. I was gonna say if if there was ever a rough back to back games, we had your Bulls and then my slash your sons back to back. As a Suns fan, I had the added, I guess, emotional investment of hoping the Bucks lose. I don't know if that's fair for me, but I still want some sort of punishment for last year. And I also want to prevent a very scary uh, finals reunion if we end up getting that far. But man, it was a it was an interesting Suns game tonight. I think we were able to learn a lot while still getting to enjoy a good game. I thought there was a chance that the second half could get out of hand. The the viewability, if you will, kind of declines, but ended up being pretty competitive all the way through. I have a question. As a Suns fan, diehard, been this way for many, many moons, were you ever genuinely nervous about the outcome of this game tonight? That's a really good question because I actually had to think about this myself. Uh, I think when they cut it to eight or nine, most any other year, I would say, yes, the Phoenix Suns fan inside of me takes over and says, oh crap, here we go again. But this team has performed so well for so long to where I think they deserve the benefit of the doubt. Like, you can't watch that and assume the worst. And so, I mean, we saw it with Chris down the stretch. I didn't know who it would be, but I knew someone was going to right the ship. And we saw that. So I don't know. Um, as a non-Suns fan, did you feel like they were ever in any danger? I have been knighted on this podcast. Sorry, as, as an Suns official fan, newer you. Suns fan who thank doesn't have the baggage. Is that you're just not, the Suns are just not first in my affections. That's Fair the... Enough. There's only one team who the Suns play who I do not root for them. So put some respect on my name. Yes, sir. No, I was not. I wasn't particularly worried. I don't think the Pelicans have the defensive chops to handle the Suns in a crunch time situation, especially when some of the Suns guards, namely Chris Paul, is just going completely off and is deciding to actually put up some shots which we can talk about he didn't do earlier on in in this game. I don't think they have enough quality defenders to hang with the Suns, so I wasn't super worried. It never technically got into crunch time, but if it did, I wasn't, I wasn't going to be too worried about just the outcome of this game. Now, there are some concerns moving forward in the series, some interesting ideas that we'll talk about a little later, but I was pretty comfortable the entire second half thinking the Suns were going to go up 1-0 in this series. No, I I agree. Uh, And before we kind of 
uh, move into covering the game and, and going over some of the questions we had going into it. Want to just remind the folks we are a part of the Bright Side Podcast Network. So if you are listening on audio, thank you very much. If you're watching here on YouTube, we appreciate it as well. You can find us on Twitter at the Valley PHX. We'll be keeping it pretty lively through the playoffs. Uh, and just for our loyal listeners, those that have been sticking with us throughout the season, we want to go ahead uh, and hold ourselves accountable here. In previous seasons, I'm not saying which one, but in previous seasons, as the playoffs continued and the emotional investment continued to grow and grow to where someone like myself may not have been able to handle the structure of a, uh, a nicely formatted podcast load with a strict schedule. And some wins I could talk after, but others I was stressed and some losses I didn't handle. That said, we will be bringing you new episodes every Monday, just like we always have. Now, we are going to be bringing back our YouTube channel, and hopefully that's going to be a permanent thing. Maybe you're watching on there right now. But we are going to be able to do quick post-game kind of just recaps and thoughts strictly for the YouTube channel. That way we're not messing with your normal schedule and routine, and you guys aren't having to listen to us way too much. But the normal schedule is going to stand. So make sure to check us out on the Bright Side Podcast Network, wherever you get your podcasts. And like I said, Into the Valley, a Phoenix Suns podcast on YouTube as well. So before we go into this game and what we actually saw on the court, Philip, you kind of had a few questions that you wanted answered going into this series. And obviously, we might not be able to have a complete picture of what it's all going to look like after just one game. Uh, but let's talk about the first question that you kind of had for me as we were discussing what to expect in game one. And that was, how are Mikhail and Jay going to cover B.I. and C.J.? And I, I hadn't, I'll be honest with you, the, the fan side of me didn't allow me to so formally write this down and think it through. The gut in me is like, oh crap, Brandon Ingram and C.J. McCollum. Like we watched them go off against the Suns early in the season. It's not something that I was excited about, but with one game in the books, what have you seen so far and how did the Suns kind of answer that question for you? So in a perfect world, Mikhail just guards both of them all the time <laughs> because of how accomplished he is on defense. But going in, I figured they would do pretty much what they did tonight with Mikhail checking CJ Sometimes, for the most part, especially after they kind of played Jackson Hayes off the floor, and then Jay guarding Bi. Now, that's that's in a perfect scenario. If Jackson Hayes can figure out how to stay on the floor, it gets a little bit more complicated. I don't think that'll be that will be the case this series. The nice part for the Suns, the really nice part for the Suns, and something that we've discussed is that they have other quality defenders who can step in and fill that role. And I want to give a shout-out tonight to Torrey Craig, especially his first-half minutes. His first-half minutes, he played some really good defense, and he was actually flipping back and forth between CJ and Brandon Ingram, which was pretty impressive from him. So the depth of Mikhail, Torrey, Cam Johnson to some extent, and then Devin Booker when he's needed – was very effective against C.J. McCollum and Brandon Ingram in the first half. In the second half, in the second half, the Pelicans were a little more intentional about 
hunting CP3, especially in the late third quarter and into the fourth quarter, which that will be something interesting to look at as the series progresses. How can the Suns ensure that Mikhail stays on CJ and that they're not getting CP3 onto him and then flattening out their offense and letting CJ go to work against Chris Paul? Yeah, and just to touch, I think, on you kind of mentioned Tori's first half minutes. That first half of basketball defensively, you really can't ask for much more from from anyone. I think the Suns as a whole put on an absolute clinic in that first half. And I don't know, some of it could have been a little bit more tired Pelicans team coming off of a very physically and emotionally draining couple of days and the Suns coming out ready to just rock and roll. But man, I just, I don't, goodness, I probably need to knock on wood here, but I don't see a way for the Pelicans offense to do something that would disrupt the good offense at the Sun, uh, defense that the Suns have, right? Like I can't think of any tweak that Willie Green's going to make and just be like, oh crap, we didn't see this coming, right? Like, and for you, you said it. We've got Mikhail, who in a perfect world, we'd have five of them on defense and we'd just, that'd be great. Uh, but is there any weak point on the defensive side where you think it could swing a game? Because I know you were worried about Chris getting switched on to certain players, kind of affecting that. But even still, do you think that could lead to something that the Suns just can't stop? No, I think the biggest, I think the biggest concern on the defensive end will be the rebounding, which will be mm-hmm. a big talking point for Suns fans after the game tonight and there's there's space to talk about rebounding but just defensively matchup to matchup the only one the only one that is concerning is how consistently in the fourth quarter the pelicans got cj matched up against cp3 now i think the last time also listeners we're coming to this fresh like we've we're starting this podcast like maybe five minutes after the this is a little Final different. We don't get our two or three rewatches yeah. after every yeah. game like we typically do. So CP3, one of the last possessions that he went head-to-head with CJ, stood him up really well and made a good defensive play. But CJ had a pretty easy time taking Chris to the basket throughout the big chunk of the fourth quarter. So again, that's that's the matchup that I would be concerned about. And you saw the Suns blitz at least once. The problem when they blitzed was that down the stretch of that game, the Pelicans had Trey Murphy in, and he's probably their best off-ball three-point shooter where they can swing, swing, and get him a good look from the corner, and he buried a corner three uh, when the Suns blitzed. So, again, biggest concern matchup-wise would be Pelicans hunting CP3, and it seemed like it was a bit of a break glass. Like, CP3 is absolutely cooking us on the offensive end, so let's try to wear him down defensively. But at that point, the Pelicans were in too much of a hole. Well, let's move away from the defensive questions you had going into it. One question that we both shared a lot and discussed was, all right, on the offensive side of the ball, what are we to expect out of those who are a bit more of question marks, if you will? The Bookers and the Pauls, we don't worry about. Those aren't the guys that we hope show up on the offensive end, right? We know that's going to happen. And so the second question you sent over to me are how are the tertiary scorers going to perform? And Philip, I want you to go ahead and uh, do a little vocab lesson for the folks at home, (laughs) just in case we have folks 
uh, like myself that read a Philip Russell text and say tertiary. That's a word I've used uh, recently, I guess. Explain what a tertiary score is, my man. Tertiary is just of third importance or third. So you think the Suns' primary score would be Booker most nights? Their secondary score? Why well, say most nights? The secondary playmaker is going to have the ball in his hands. Is going to be CP3. And then outside of those two, who is going to bring it? offensively that's the big question that we had and tonight deandre ayton with just a chef's kiss performance on the offensive end a couple weeks ago we were talking about how his his ability to step out this season 10 to 15 feet from the basket and consistently hit shots opens up so much for the suns and tonight especially early on the pelicans seem to have an idea of if someone's going to beat us in this pick and roll, it's going to be DeAndre Ayton, seven to 12 feet away from the basket. And he was great. He was ready for it. And I think we talked a, a few weeks ago, it might have been the week he had his career high of it looks like Ayton finally knows how. And I don't mean that in a rude way to say he didn't before, but it looks like he's finally fitting in like a normal guy into the 0.5 system. Like he is catching it off the pick and roll and immediately making a decision. And that's all you need. He got in so much trouble, not because of a lack of offensive ability, but he was waiting too long, allowing someone to close it out, allowing people to get where they needed to. And he's playing quick and it's continuing to show. But but to your point, in terms of kind of where his offense was coming from, I'm looking forward to the stats tomorrow in terms of where his shots were, even if it's just a generic shot chart, something like that. But if you look at his numbers, he's 10 of 15 from the field, one of one from three, which is just uh, the best. Zero free throws. And I think that does speak a bit to where he was kind of settling down and finding his home on the offensive end of things. But to your point, he got the job done. Do you think looking forward, do you think we can expect him to be that number three scorer for the remainder of the series based on how the matchups work out? Or do we think this is going to be a night to night thing? Cause that's the question I kind of had. We saw it in the playoffs last year, a lot, right? McHale was that third guy. Uh, Cam wasn't quite as hot as he was now, but we could see Cam easily being that third guy. He was a great boost off the bench offensively tonight. Do you think Aiton is primed for a successful series given what the Pelicans have thrown out there? I think a lot of that will depend on how Willie green decides to make adjustments. On on one hand, I would think yes, he'll still be available. And if it's if it comes down to would you rather have CP3 taking a shot against your team or DA taking a shot against your team, I think you would still want DA, so long as it's not a dunk, mm-hmm. to be the one taking the shot. But I could see a scenario where the Pelicans say, All right, Phoenix, beat us from three. Yep. And they start crashing off help side they start crashing off of even spain the snap that the suns run if they start uh crashing down from the weak side off of guys like jay crowder cam johnson and especially campaign when he's in the game i could see a world where the pelicans at least for a game say beat us from deep or at least during specific sections of a game say okay with the current lineup that's on the floor we are going to crash down hard against DA and make the Suns beat us from the perimeter. Yeah, I'm I'm interested with that thought as well cuz in terms of three-point shooting is relatively no low numbers from from both sides. The Suns going 10 of 28, 
Pelicans nine of twenty three. Uh, again, it's weird kind of going into these episodes without getting to do our, our full research like we do a lot of the times. I'm curious to look at the other playoff games around the league just through game one to see what type of three-point attempt numbers were seen elsewhere. But this sure seemed low to me. Um, and even aside from that, if you take out Chris Paul going four from six, which I would say would be our outlier, the Suns are, uh, quick math, six of 22 from three. So overall, not a great shooting night, disappointing night from some of the the typical guys you'd expect. I think Jay went over, Mikhail went over, um, you know, the Suns got what was given to them. And a lot of that was, like you said, DeAndre Ayton in that six to 10 foot and he made it work. I'm curious what would change if he wasn't making it work, if he wasn't hitting those shots early. Um but again, I, I'm intrigued. Do you think we could see a McHale night given the defensive workload that he is currently under? Because I was looking at that as well, thinking, I mean, he's got he's got his hands full on the defensive end. Do you think that could affect what we see on the offensive end for him? In some respects, yes. But I also think McHale fits so well into the offense that you don't have to ask him to exert a significant amount of energy to get a lot of his looks. A lot of the sets that the Suns run, they get him some sort of straight line drive to the basket or some sort of looping drive Mm -hmm. to the basket like they do with the classic elbow set where Mikhail starts at the right right elbow, gets that little screen, and then he loops around and tries to contort his body to lay it in around around the big. So I think he... You could see it, again, so much of this. Willie Green is such a great coach that a lot of it is going to be dependent on what the Pelicans decide they would rather live with. Mm -hmm. Because, again, I'm not sure you want to live with. DA shot chart tonight was, I believe, seven of his 10 field goals that he had tonight. His feet were in the paint, and four of them were in the restricted area. So he his... His shot chart is really good, and he hit he hit two jumpers at the free throw line and one closer to the top of the key as well. But there's a if you're familiar with NBA.com's shot charts, there are a lot of green circles in the lane for Mr. Da tonight, which is excellent. And you would imagine the Pelicans would say that's not happening again. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh- it is worth noting, I think, we did see a nine-man rotation. Uh, we were intrigued to see what the first playoff rotation would look like. Landry, I would say, is probably the one guy that didn't play that would be next up, I would assume. And his participation, or lack thereof, I think, is something that goes into your final question that you asked me going into tonight. And that was, how will the point guards not named Chris Paul play tonight? or just against the Pelicans in general. Now, before I let you answer your own question, I do want to bring our attention to the stats. Tonight, we had nine players play. Every single one of them had a positive plus-minus, except for one. I think we discussed this while watching the game live. Do you know who that one was? Yes, it was campaign. Yes, it was. I, and it matched the eye test, too. It did. It did. Cam did not have a great night. I don't 
I don't know what it is. I was trying to think when he came back from his injury, he just is not sharp. He's telegraphing passes. Some of his shot selection is weird. His jumper looks broken right now. So that's a big question. But one of the reasons I phrased the question in the way that I did and something we discussed last week or a week before last week is I can see a time where the Suns stagger like they did tonight, Devin and Devin Booker and Chris Paul. And then Cam Johnson goes from 22 and a half minutes up to 30, 32. And Cameron Payne's minutes come down significantly from that. So I could see that as a possibility if campaign continues to play in the way that he is. But one of the things we know about Monty is that he is not quick to mm-hmm. pull the plug on his guys. Like he's going to ride it out as much as he can because down the road, you could even think next, next series against a guy like Rudy Gobert campaigns blazing speed could be helpful against Rudy Gobert and maybe even more with the jazz with a guy like Hassan Whiteside coming off the bench to back up Rudy Gobert. So ideally campaign gets it going, but right now how will point guards named CP three play? Not well. Yeah. And the thing is for me, I feel like even when we have a normal bad campaign game, which there have been more recently than in the past, I feel like the assists are a saving grace. <clears throat> Excuse me. Like, I think it's, man, he didn't shoot well. Man, he looked lost at times. But, oh, look, five or six assists, right? Like, that's kind of been the thing that he's been able to have to dig himself out of the hole that he often creates by ill-advised shots, by penetrating into the paint, but not actually knowing what's going to happen after his first option, which is a layup goes downhill. Like, Usually he's got that. Tonight, no assists, one turnover in 17 minutes. Now, I do want to mention, like you said, we did see more of a stagger with Chris and Devin than we had before. I'm going to, again, I want to go back and look at the on-off minutes there. It felt more staggered than it had been, at least just kind of in my rough notes that I was taking. But because of that, we did see Booker's assist numbers go up. Uh, Booker, I think, ended up with eight. Paul ended up with 10. It seemed like one of them was the primary facilitator whenever they were out there. Do you think that can have an adverse effect on any other point guard that's playing alongside either of them? Or I'll just say guard in general, I would guess, when you're putting one of them out there with Chris. like, Do you think that whoever that number two guard is is going to be not quite their normal self if the other guy is the facilitator, the creator every single time down the court. Because in the regular season, I feel like we saw Cam come on the court and be the facilitator. I don't know if that's going to happen or if Booker's going to just say, hey, I'm I'm kind of point booking it whether you like it or not. So a lot of it, a lot of it depends on who Herb Jones is guarding, at least with the starting group. He's fun, by the way. Can I just, I know I've been ragging on him because his name feels like it should be on one of my vinyl records over there for like a smooth jazz album in the 80s or whenever, but like he's fun to watch. They've got a lot of fun young guys that I've enjoyed watching to get ready for the series and then watch tonight as well. Yeah, so you would think that he, he'll he be on Booker or CP3 whenever he's on the court. And when CP3 and Booker share the court with one another, whoever 
isn't being guarded by him become sort of de facto the number one option. And they did this a couple times tonight where Jones was pressing up on CP3. And I think they, they might've done it even the first possession of the game where he was pressing up on CP3. So they went straight to Booker running off of several screens. And I know later on in the game, they had Jay Crowder bring the ball up the court when Jones was pressing up as CP3 was bringing the ball up the court. And they went straight into a double screen for Booker off the ball to put Ingram into into action and make him go around multiple screens instead of engaging with a really good defender like Jones. Yeah. What do you think? And again, we small sample size here. What do you think campaign ceiling is in, in this series? Because for me, and like you said, I think the value could be there later, but the way that Pelicans are playing the way they have, you know, their bigs play, like what do you think campaign's potential ceiling could be? If he's if he's on the floor with JaVale and Cam Johnson, and then he kind of splits with Booker and CP3, best case scenario is he has to hit a third of his threes. Yeah. Has to. Like if he tonight, if he went two of six, one of three from three, five points. We can say not terrible, but some of the misses tonight were bad. Wide open and bad. Wide open bricks. And it's just concerning when you project forward to, is that what the defense is going to wind up giving him? And then if he winds up getting those shots, can he he knock them down? And again, I feel like we have to qualify this. We are big campaign fans. Mm -hmm. I love his story. He is a joy to watch. He is fun to keep up with. I think he seems like he's a good dude, but he's got to perform. He's got to perform because there are going to be games in this playoff run where CP3 is in foul trouble, Booker's in foul trouble, or some combination of one of them's in foul trouble and the other one just getting locked down by a really good defender, he is needed. He is a necessary part of this offensive scheme. Last question regarding this guard spot, uh, Cam, whatever. Do you think if the series continues like it did tonight, where that other guard just needs to be defensively in the right place and doing their job, right? You're not having to shut down BI or someone but offensively needs to take advantage of the open shots that are going to be created for them. Could we see Landry Shamit minutes in the campaign slot, given how he looked the last couple weeks leading up to it? Here's the classic Philip answer. No, that's not, it's just not Landry's strong suit right now. His, his, it's as simple as, I don't think his handle is good enough to I don't think he can create even if Cam uh, is facilitating poorly I still think that's still a skill set that Landry hasn't shown yeah and however long ago was when we had David on the pod the nice part about the guards coming off the Suns bench 
at that point, Cam was injured or he was just coming back from his injury. Mm -hmm. You look and you say, okay, Landry Shamit is more of the Devin Booker role. Booker is obviously a significantly better facilitator than Landry. But they're coming off screens, trying to stretch the floor with their the magnetism that their shot making can create. And then if you need a facilitator off the bench, not named campaign, I think it's Aaron holiday, Mm -hmm. but I don't, I don't think the Suns want to be in a position where they have to play Landry or Aaron really at all. I I was going to say, I don't think, I don't think Monty will want to add to the rotation if he never has to, I think it's just, it's easier. It's cleaner. It's easier to set expectations in terms of this is the game plan and this is who we've got running it. Yep. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm intrigued just because just because Landry had showed a lot. Like he he seemed to be figuring a lot out in those last three weeks. Um, and maybe it's a series to series thing. I know we've talked about that in the past too, right? Seeing which series dictates which guys, even even yeah. rosters where a Bismack might be getting minutes in one series, not the other. Uh, but no, that's that's interesting. And I'm curious to see, I guess, just what comes next. I just hope Cam has a good bounce back in game two. Yeah, yeah and just just to recap, listeners, I know we've, we've talked a lot about how to watch basketball, and that was a huge part of our discussion with David as part of our ongoing talks with David and DMs and on Twitter. This These questions, they're the lens through which I'm – watching the Suns games. So again, it's how well will Mikhail and Jay guard CJ McCollum and Brandon Ingram? How well basically scores not named Chris Paul or Devin Booker perform? And then we said, how will the backup point guard play? It's really how will campaign play when he, when he has the ball mm-hmm. in his hands. So if you're looking for a more focused viewing experience, those are, those are three questions that you can ask to uh, hopefully guide your guide your viewing of Suns basketball. Yeah. Well, before we talk about what's to come, looking at game two in the future, uh, just wanted to give us an opportunity, I think, just to kind of share anything that was maybe on your list of notes, anything that you wanted to cover. Um, I know I had a few things myself as we kind of, we pivot away from our, our normal weekly recap where we're covering three or four games here. We're just talking about this one tonight. Uh, but in terms of kind of the story of the game, what stood out to you when you think about Pelican Suns game one? This is what it was to me. Yeah, so quarter by quarter, I think is a helpful way to approach that because it was so different between the Habs and even the third quarter to the fourth quarter was mm-hmm. massively different. So starting off, I think in the first quarter, Booker's facilitating in the pick and roll was excellent. Four of his eight assists came in the first quarter, and he set he set a really good tone when he was in the pick and roll looking for DA. I think he found DA twice in the first quarter, and that balanced approach just wrecked the Pelicans. Just wrecked the Pelicans. A 12-point lead at the end of one quarter is a huge, huge margin, and they had held the Pelicans at 16 points. And the Suns were off and running with 28. Now, I didn't ask you this ahead of time. So I'm putting you on the spot a little bit. Player of the game. Looking at the game in its entirety, I feel like you could have a different player of the game for each quarter. 
how different some of it was. I think if you look at the first half and the first quarters, your player of the game could have been someone on the defensive end who would just completely clamp down. I know that's where my mind went. I think if you look recency bias, if you can use that to describe a game that we just watched here or a quarter we just watched, you could say Chris Paul in the incredible value that he had. Who do you have down as your player of the game for game one? There's a, You're I used to play golf a lot. And there's a saying in golf, it's not about how you drive, it's about how you arrive. And because of that, I think it's it's got to be CP3. But again, but again, to your point, so we said first quarter, Booker facilitating, that was excellent. In the second quarter, you had McHale just with an unbelievable mm-hmm. defensive performance. The third quarter... The Pelicans totally flipped the script. And if you go on NBA.com and look at their shot chart, their shot chart changed a lot in the third quarter. First of all, it went green, which is to say they actually started making shots. But if you look at their first half shot chart and then their second half shot chart, it gets closer to the basket, noticeably closer to the basket, along with just a couple threes that they took in the third quarter. But then, I mean, man, when we're talking about player of the game, it's got to be the fourth quarter absolute masterpiece that CP3 put on. It was astounding, astounding to watch. He had a quote. I think he was he was interviewing with the TNT guys, and it was something to the extent of, just because I, uh, I facilitate or just because I don't shoot a lot doesn't mean I don't know how to, right? Like. <laughs> It's like people just kind of forget what he's capable of. I will openly admit we were watching. We basically watched the games with the headset on equivalent of being on the phone together in, in different rooms. And I just don't remember the last time I've seen Chris ha- see, hit that many threes in a quarter since joining the Suns. I also know that his shooting had been a bit of a question mark this season, let alone coming off of his very long stint off. Uh, that has to be so encouraging to Suns fans, especially given so many things we missed out on last year in the playoffs because of his inability to physically shoot a basketball. It's just great being able to see like this guy at age 49 can still completely take over a basketball game. I might've exaggerated on the 49, but he's somewhere in the mid to late thirties, right? Like goodness, man, he just, it was like you're at the local gym and this one guy's just kind of tired with putting up with it. And he's just like, I'm, I'm going to take over now. And no one can stop him. He's getting to the rim. He's getting to his normal 12-footer that he loves. And then the threes, man. Like, how many times in a row did they end up having him versus Larry Nance Jr.? Poor Larry Nance Jr. I love the guy. But, man, you're setting him up to fail. Like, what on earth is he supposed to do in that situation? other than just wrap them up. It's really annoying just basketball wise to watch the Pelicans scheme. We're going to push up on CP three. We're going to hound him as he comes up the court. And then they give up a switch on a Jay Crowder pick at half court. It was, it was bad. And that was, I think that might've been in the third quarter. I think I might have, I think I put that in my notes in the third quarter. But uh, by the time the fourth quarter came along, they kept giving up an easy switch. And that's the 
that's the terminology you might hear sometimes on broadcasts where the color commentators usually will say the defense can't give up a switch that easily. Mm-hmm. It's just where the defender kind of feels the screen coming and they take a step back and just switch and allow the big to go out and guard the uh, ball handler. And it's, it's lazy defense and it could be some poor scheming on one hand, thinking that Larry Nance was going to be able to stick with CP three. Honestly, I, maybe I'm giving him too much credit. That's how I saw it play out. They looked too okay to let that happen to have it happen that many times, right? Yeah. Like they're pro basketball players are playing the playoffs. They know what they're doing. Uh, Chris was even joking on some of his threes in that post game that he's hearing Willie and the bench over there. Like, Make sure to go under, go under, go under calling out how they're going to handle the pick and roll or whatever. And he's like, I know I have time to get my feet set and put up a shot. Like they're telling me what is going to be available for me. And so I took advantage of it. Uh, and he even, he even joked like, Tonight they go in, tomorrow they may not. But if if I'm Willie Green, I'm looking at that, I'm like, I, I can't let Chris Paul get switched on to a big. I mean, any big, right? Do they have anyone that can hang on the perimeter? Because I can't imagine Jackson or Jonas can as well. Like, that's just, that's going to be deadly if they continue to allow that to happen. So looking at what they can do, I guess, as we as we kind of look towards the future here what do you expect to see differently going into game two what are we what are you watching like you said we we a lot of times have have our own storylines going into a game we focus on that so we can then report on that and share that what are you watching for going into game two three things number one how can the suns get some rebounding help against jv it's it is not enough to say DA should just get more rebounds. That is not it. JV is a big dude down low. It has to be, has to be a collective effort. So that's number one. Number two, how are the Suns going to defend CJ when the Pelicans are hunting CP3? So just like, and we touched on this a little bit earlier, just like the Suns were going at Jackson Hayes, just like they were going at Larry Nance down the stretch, the Pelicans were going at CP3. I'm interested to see how Monty schemes for that, or if they look at Chris Paul and say, handle it, defend well. Like this is this is going to be part of your assignment. And then the third thing is just how can the Suns get other shooters going, specifically getting Jay Crowder and Campaign going a little bit. Jay was 0 for 4 from 3. Cam was 0 for 3. So get those guys going figure out the defense, and then maybe most importantly in terms of really putting your foot on the opponent's neck is sure up that defensive rebounding. Yeah, I was going to say, I think we we talked about that in our mailbag, looking at what has been the difference between the Suns' success and failure. Uh, And I spent more time than I needed to looking at the rebounding percentage of all their wins and all their losses. And for me, who very much enjoys looking through the stats to hopefully explain things, the rebounding numbers were it. That was the one stat that was a massive difference between Suns' wins and losses throughout the old season. And so I don't think it's crazy that's popping up again. I wanted to read off some just some very <laughs> sad box score numbers here. Uh, Jonas, Jonas Valanciunas had 25 rebounds, 
13 of them were on the offensive glass. They had 25 offensive rebounds. I think the Suns had 35 total. If the Suns prevented those offensive rebounds, and I haven't had a chance to see actual second chance points, but if you clean that up, I feel like this game doesn't even become a game in the third and fourth quarter. Like if you're taking away those opportunities, if you're taking advantage of the stops your defense is getting, that that doesn't allow this game to stay as close as it does. And so I think you're I think you're right. I think the the blame Aiton is a lazy take. Uh people will still do it, but that's fine. It's a lazy take. There's a lot more that goes into rebounding other than having your tall guy make sure he jumps every time with his hands up. So that'll be an interesting number to see. I think if if I'm the coaching staff, I am printing out that box score, I'm circling those offensive rebounds, and I'm handing it to everyone over five foot eleven, aka everybody. Because even the guards and the wings have a, a role to play here. You're boxing out, you're getting where you need to be, you're helping out. Like you can't just assume that your big and is gonna get it. So that's a big one for me. I wanted to kind of just ask outside of of looking ahead there were two things i wanted to mention uh just as notes that i wanted to make sure got some love here i thought cam johnson and javel mcgee both played outstanding games and both of them to me did things that i was really hoping to see and, and and needing to see for cam i was really nervous to see if he was going to be his normal self he has looked I don't want to say he's looked off. His shot's not been falling. Let's put it that way. He's getting to where he needs to. He's getting good looks. But for the last couple of weeks since returning from his injury, the shots have not been falling. Tonight, he ended up having a very good, efficient 23 minutes, five of six from the field, one of two from the three-point line, two of three from the free throw line. He did a lot. He also was able to get, uh, just in general, some good looks for other people. He was great in the fast break. He looked confident with the ball in his hand, taking people off the bounce. That was a big answered question for me. I think Cam is going to be vital for the success of this team long-term in the playoffs. Uh, and then secondly, JaVale McGee, man, like I, I said it to you earlier tonight when I was watching, like, can you ask for a better backup center? He defensively brings it every night. He's not going to be slacking. And the energy that I feel like he was able to, to pump into that place was just wonderful. Like, think back to last year's playoffs. Imagine if we had JaVale McGee, how different things would be. Like, that's crazy, right? From a guy that played, what, uh, 14 minutes? Like, he played 14 minutes, and, and he had a lasting impression on me in game one. What did you think about Cam Johnson or JaVale or, or any other player that maybe we haven't been able to touch on too much? I thought Cam was good. There was there was a big play, I think it was in the fourth, where Cam got got an offensive rebound. No, it was late in the third. He got the offensive rebound and one to go up 10, which helped give Pelicans cut a date, but put a little bit extra space between the Pelicans and the Suns. So I was really happy with that. I liked that Cam seemed to be very intent on getting downhill. Several times, I love Cam Johnson going towards the basket. He is surprisingly athletic when he does that. JaVale, I appreciate JaVale's energy. I think offensively, he's okay. I think if I was Willie Green, 
and I was looking at someone on the Suns who I think I can pick on defensively, I think for them it's going to be JaVale. And I think you saw it a little bit tonight where the the Pelicans were clearing out the right side of the court a lot and then putting putting CJ into some pick and rolls. What they were doing was they were putting JaVale in those pick and rolls because JaVale isn't as comfortable getting up to the level of the screen. Instead, he wants to play back in a drop. So he wants to be closer to the lane at the free throw line extended when those screens are being set. Against a guy like CJ, he's going to have to be up. Mm. Or CJ can step right into threes or step right into pretty easy pull-ups, which he got several of those tonight. So looking at JaVale as the series goes on, I hope I hope he defends well enough to stay in it, but I wouldn't be surprised if the 14 minutes, all of a sudden you're looking up and his 14 has become 10 or 8 and Tory's, Tory Craig's 11 have all of a sudden become 15 or so. Because I think Tory will be able to match up against a guy like Nance okay. And one of the things that that can do is that can counteract that CJ with their five pick and roll that they're trying to do in order to pick on a guy like JaVale. Yeah. No, I, I hope he continues to deliver. I I want him to kind of have that backup five role cemented and locked up. And again, I think the less players you have to add to the rotation, the easier it is to find consistency and success. And, and I hope he brings it. I think, I think he will. I have a guy that was the laughing stock of the NBA for quite some time. I have a whole lot of confidence in him now, and I think I think he's going to do well. But the little voice in the back of my head says, "You've got a really good third center on the bench too." If, in case of emergency, you got to break glass, right? Um, so no, I think I think overall. I think the second half could have gone a different way in terms of feeling really confident moving on with the rest of the series. I think being able to see Chris do what he did, though, does give me a little bit more faith long term. If you're looking big picture, it was good to see him do that. But right now, putting us both on the spot here after game one. If you had to write it down, I already see you putting your hand up. What's it, what's your prediction for the series? Predicted Suns in five. Sticking with Suns in five. I think Suns in five is a safe bet. I'm going to go ahead and say Suns in four, but not in the way that would make me an obnoxious fan uh, in a playoff game from last year. I'm going to see a very reasonably low-volume Suns in four because I just, I don't know, I think... I think there's a couple people for the Pelicans that if things go really, really right, they make a huge difference. But I also think it would take a lot of players for the Suns going really, really wrong. And I just don't know if those odds are there. Uh, so we'll see. We'll keep we'll keep track of this. Hopefully I don't have to increase my number after game two uh, to cover my own butt here. But if you are looking forward to keeping up with the rest of the series, game two is Tuesday night. Uh, the 19th at 9 p.m. Central Time on TNT. That's going to be a late night. Philip. i got to go ahead and uh, I don't want to put you on record here, but that is the 19th. I believe you have a child due on the 20th. 
How are we? Uh, how are we feeling about that? Are we going to be recording from a hospital? No. That's probably the good answer. I don't know if Sarah has ever listened to one of these episodes, but in the off chance she does, that is the right answer. I know your dad listens. That'll make him proud if he makes it all the way to the 48-minute mark here. Yeah, hey, man, I'm planning I'm planning to watch the games as much as I can, and then I'll be off work. So I, I work in education, and I'll be, I'll be off work the rest of the year. So watching the games will not be a problem over this playoff run. Watching the games live might be. So yeah. Well, uh, again, listeners, we are very dedicated to our original schedule. So late Sunday night, early Monday, Monday in the afternoon, whenever we can get it up, you are going to get into the Valley Phoenix Suns podcast, part of the bright side. Yeah, baby. It's just a matter of if we can consistently do what we're doing tonight, which is hopping on the mics right after the game ends. That's less likely with a newborn uh, about to make her arrival. That's true. Now, here's the crazy thing. We got Ryan traveling for work. We've got a chance that you're going to be in the hospital with a baby. Am I going to do a one-man show, Ethan Shut Into the Valley, a Phoenix Suns podcast? Is that doable? Who would listen to that? And how on earth do people like Ryan Rosillo sit down for an hour and 45 cover seven different sports, including things like water polo and cricket, and yet I still listen to it. Like, that's incredible. Like, I feel like we struggle sometimes with just the two or three of us. How am I supposed to talk basketball to myself in this camera? I'm a little nervous. Can we, can we make sure that the baby cooperates and works around the schedule? Is that too much to ask? A sweep would probably be good. A sweep would probably give us the most time to, to adjust if necessary. That's true, and I don't think we're going to have to get too far into the weeds during during this series. If you're if you're a Suns fan and you're feeling any kind of anxiety after tonight's game, no. settle down. They're true. fine. They're fine. You took a barrage in the third quarter and the first part of the fourth from the Pelicans. It's probably about as well as the Pelicans will play this series, and you're still standing, which is probably what some dudes doing a Milwaukee Bucks podcast are saying right now. We took the best punch that the Bulls had to offer, and we still won. We're all right. I don't know. Can you call the Bulls the best punch when you look at Vooch's numbers? That boy, that boy left you hanging, man. I hated that for you. Let's, let's take a step back. We're over 50 minutes. We're just going to keep rolling for a second. This weekend was awesome when it yes, comes to Yes, I was going to say, can we just, for the yeah. Suns fans that only care about the Suns, good on you. We love you very much. This has been Into the Valley of Phoenix Suns podcast, and we out. But NBA fans, if you're still here rocking with us, what an incredible week. Play-in games, game ones for everyone. What, what, what games stuck out for you? We watched, we talked through and watched Celtics Nets together. But that, what a, dude, what a week of basketball. So okay. good. Okay. If you haven't watched the last play of the game between the Celtics and the Nets this afternoon, it's so good. It's so good. So Jalen Brown has a good matchup, and he starts backing his guy down, backing his guy down, backing his guy down as the clock's running out. Kind of realizes that the dude's playing good defense, so he kicks it to Marcus Smart with about three-ish, maybe two and a half seconds left. And you think, oh man, Marcus Smart's about to do Marcus Smart things and pull. He pump fakes, two defenders fly by as he steps in and bullets a pass 
to a spinning Jason Tatum. Are you the kidding ballerina. me, dude? Who it was lays gorgeous. it in. It was beautiful. The awareness from the entire Celtics team on that was wonderful. But, but if there was one team that stood out to you most in their game ones, who would it be for you, Ethan? I'll be honest with you. I feel like my most impressive and the first team that I watched, I was like, oh crap, I hope we don't run into them. It was the Heat, but I think more of that was the Hawks than it was the Heat. Like, I, I don't know. I just, I didn't see it there. I, I am, I can't get over the amount of talent in a 2-7 matchup that happens to be Celtics versus Nets. But the team that stuck out to me the most is, this is, this may be weird, but it was still the Nets. Like, Kyrie and Kevin Durant on the same court is just, and I don't agree with some of these people's uh, views on certain things, including the shape of the world that we live in. But like those two dudes, when they're on in my mind, cannot be stopped by any human basketball player. And it's crazy to me how poorly they have done with that group. Uh, but out west, if I'm if I'm saying the team that stood out to me the most, it'd be the T Wolves. Like I thought, their run was great, but man, I thought that first game against Memphis was a good, good opening punch in what I think will be a long, long series. Uh, but I don't know. I thought it was there's just a lot. Who are you? Who are you thinking over there? The lineup that includes Jordan Poole, Wardell Stephen Curry, and Clay Thompson I refuse, at the same time. I refuse to let myself get worried about them yet. Is nasty. I, ref, I refuse to be worried about them yet. I think the Suns can put them in a blender when the Suns have the ball, but man, that is a loaded, loaded lineup. The last the last few minutes of the second quarter and then just the barrage in the second half from the dubs was I mean, very impressive this weekend. Given the improvement of Poole and others, I was trying to think back, and obviously KD brings things to another level, but I think it's the most competent shooters that have ever been on a Curry Warriors team. Mm-hmm. Like, they are just stacked with dudes who can just be like, let's play five out, move around, create space. And someone who can hit shots is going to get a good one. That scares me very, very much. And welcome back to into the Valley Phoenix Suns podcast. It's very reminiscent of what the Suns did to the nuggets last year, where Jokic is getting put into a bunch of actions. Some of their other weaker defenders are getting put into a bunch of actions. You looked Sad. He's gassed, man. He, he carries sad. such a heavy load on really both ends of the court. Being mm-hmm. the being the de facto rim protector, if you can call Jokic a rim protector in any sense of that word. And then the sun around which their entire offense revolves. Warriors were super impressive. I'm also really proud of the Bulls. Really proud of my Bulls and the fight that they put on. Mm-hmm. But that the first half from the Suns, I think think is probably the most impressive half of basketball from this weekend 
I would agree. And and one thing too, and I think we said it, we said it just when the playoff uh, bracket or whatever you want to call it uh, was was released. But man, the Suns have to be happy to be on the side of the bracket that they are. Uh, obviously, we still have a whole series left here uh, with the Pelicans. But when you're looking that on your side, you've got Dallas or Utah, you got to feel pretty good when you know that either a red-hot T-Wolves team or a Grizzlies team that's going to get it together like they have many times are going to go up against a Warriors team, which I'm going to go ahead and just chalk that one. There was nothing that I saw in that entire game that said, yes, the Nuggets can somehow win this. Not a chance in the world. This may be nuts. I am as, I'm probably as confident about that as I am about the Suns beating the Pelicans. Like, just the way that matchup works out, Nuggets are toast, man. And I hate it for Jokic, but they are toast. But being able to play if we beat the Pelicans, the winner of Jazz Mavs, that's that's so nice. Given given what's on the other side, I know I'm pretty sure we both watched almost every game of of the weekend. After watching Mavs and Jazz, and we'll probably discuss this more as our series continues. Was there anything that you saw that had you concerned from the Jazz and Mavs? Yeah, like is there no. anything right like? There was there was no thing that popped up where I was like, oh well, this could, like no like, and I'm and this is coming from someone who says Mavs with healthy Luca, I still would prefer over Memphis or Golden State. I know some people felt differently there, which I I'm very confused by how you got there, but I mean, I just there's nothing in that series that concerns me from either team. The Jazz still look like just a big old hot mess like every bit of it and without Rudy Gobert that game doesn't stay a game for as long as it did in the beginning like Gobert defensively was playing rock solid for the first half like he he kept that game close when it looked like it might not be but neither of those teams scare me and I may eat my words and that's fine but neither of those teams scare me at all Especially when you look out east, can you imagine being in the Eastern Conference right now? Those series, man, I, that's just, it doesn't seem fair. Like, it's like the league has been turned on its head. If you think back to prime LeBron years, right, where the east was LeBron versus the group, the group was weak, and then the west was just the juggernaut. I feel like it's flipped to some extent. The east has got some scary teams, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm happy to be where we're at. I think the value of the one seed and home court advantage is could not be felt any stronger for the Suns than right now. I don't know, Bulls fan. How are you feeling about the East? Here's the deal. I love basketball more than I love any particular team. And I'm very grateful to have been in a position this weekend to enjoy a whole lot mm-hmm. of NBA basketball because as a great philosopher once said, basketball is very good. That's true. We got a quick, quick question for you that we're going to wrap this thing up. The play-in tournament, good idea or bad idea? Incredible. It's great. It's amazing. That was, dude, it was great. Like those games were 
phenomenal. Uh, and we we don't have the time to go into all these because I know that as much as our wonderful listeners love hearing us talk Suns basketball, I don't think they want to hear an in-depth recap of Patrick Beverly's uh, profanity-ridden everything from the last couple of days. But goodness, playing tournament, two thumbs up. Uh, can we pour one out for the Clippers real quick? Who saw that coming? I hate it for an unhealthy Paul George, who I think was the reason it happened, but we, we, we put a lot of airtime out there worrying about the Clippers and look at this. I, I ain't mad about it. I ain't mad at all, but, uh, man, we've got, we've got a day to rest tomorrow. Hopefully you guys at home are listening to this on Monday because Tuesday we got more basketball coming at you. But before we bring this to a close, I want to just say, There are so many great sources for Suns Media out there. There are other wonderful podcasts. There are great newsletters. There are great articles, great tweets. Like, enjoy it, Suns fans. The playoffs are a wonderful thing. We're glad to be back. Hopefully it'll become the new norm. But we went a long, long time without it. So let's enjoy it, every little bit of it. Philip. Looking forward to game two. I'm looking forward to watching that with you. Anything else you want to add before we call it a night, given that it's about to be midnight? No, I'm ready for bed. I figured you would be. Well, for Philip, I am Ethan. This is Into the Valley, a Phoenix Suns podcast. We out.